Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I should like to draw our attention to the gospel according to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, this morning. Exodus 20. As evangelical Christians, we believe that right teaching is absolutely necessary. Because right teaching leads to right living. But more than that, it's because we believe that through right teaching, God makes right hearts. We need hearts that are regenerated, made new, brought to life. It's only right hearts that receive that teaching, and it's only right hearts that then are able to rightly live before God. Would you stand with me as I read Exodus 20, the first 17 verses this morning? And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who was within your gates, for in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you this morning asking, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us, and what we are not, make us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. What is your standard for morality? How do you know if you are a good person? How do you know if 
other people are good people. And who sets the standard? Do we get to determine how high the bar is set or how low the bar is set? And if so, how high do we make the bar or how low do we put the bar? Make no mistake about it, there is much moral confusion in our world today. People have a hard time determining what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. Many in our culture have succumbed to moral relativism. That is, you get to decide what is right and what is wrong for yourself. It's often whatever is the most expedient. It's just quick. It's easy. Whatever works in our favor. What is it that we want? What is it that gets us ahead in life? What is it that fulfills us and satisfies us? What is it that makes you happy For after all, the world says, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Yes, it can. Let's be honest. What makes you happy could be morally despicable. When moral relativism rules the day, There are bound to be inconsistencies. Why is that? Because you can't have it your way all the time. Because eventually, you're going to come up against someone else. And what you say is right and wrong is going to butt heads with what they say is right and wrong. Who's to say who's right? Who's to say who's wrong? Whose morality wins? No wonder there is moral chaos. Why is all of this happening? It's because in many cases, most cases, whether knowingly or unsuspectingly, our culture has followed what Friedrich Nietzsche boasted when he said this, God is dead. God remains dead. We have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? The murderers of all murderers. What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned was bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? When we murder God, all morality goes out the window. And Nietzsche wasn't saying that lamenting it. He was saying that boasting it. And what was his solution? Well, we have to become the gods now. We set ourselves up as the gods. You see a problem with that? We make awful gods. (laughs) Cruel, vile, evil, wicked gods. Those are the kinds of gods that we make. Those are the kinds of gods that we invent. So with this truth that the murder of God seeks to go on in our world and has been going on for a long time, did not start with Nietzsche. Our world always tries to murder God We come to the sixth word that came to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. And for some, for some, this sixth word becomes the bar of morality. Are you a good person? How do you know? Someone might say, well, at least I haven't killed anybody. Besides sounding very immature, is that really the standard by which we want to judge ourselves?
is a good person the person who merely hasn't murdered anybody? How low then does the bar have to go for us to get over it? And as we meditate this morning on this sixth word, the sixth commandment, it's fairly plain and fairly simple. You shall not murder. If we are to consider that word without much thought, we might consider it to be the safest word out of the ten words. The other nine, they can be tough. But at least I know I got, you shall not murder in the bag. Check that one off. Let's close our Bibles and take a nap. What we think might be the safest words of all. The word that we will never get close to. The word that will never tempt us. The one word that we would say, I would never do that, proves to be one of the most dangerous words. how we might like to easily skip over this word. But have you ever thought and taken the time to think, why did God put this word in his list of 10 words? If you're thinking 10 most important things to tell somebody, does this make the list? That God would have to say, I'm going to live in relationship with you, I'm going to love you because of my grace, Don't murder each other. If these 10 words are the heartbeat of the whole entire law that Yahweh is giving to Moses and the Israelites, these then are the most 10 important words. And all of the other words that we have in the Bible flow out of these 10 words. But why does God include this word? As we go through these Ten Commandments, remember that two of these have been very positive. Keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother. Those are positive commands. Why does God give those in positive terms? Because we usually fail to do those things. But the other eight come in negative terms. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any carved image. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Why? Because those are all the things that we are prone to do. While we might fail keeping the Sabbath day or why we might fail honoring our father and mother, these other ones come to us as in the negative because we're tempted to do all of these things. So why does the Lord have to tell the Israelites and why does the Lord have to tell us don't murder? This is not for the minority of people who might be tempted to murder other people. It's for the majority of people. It's for all people. The worst and worst first step that we could take is to think ah, this one apply to me. Again, it's framed in very individualistic terms. You, singular. We could put our name there. Each and every individual will have to give an account towards this end. But then we come to this verb, murder. Most translations have this word as murder. If you read the King James Version, it says, thou shalt not kill. What's difficult is that both of these words have the potential to be misunderstood, to miss the mark somehow of how we think about them. Kill might be too broad of a word, and murder might be too narrow of a word. Let us know first and foremost that this verb, murder, is always used in the Old Testament with human beings as the object. So, this reference is never to animal life, this reference is never to plant life. You cannot make the case of being a vegetarian from this verse. This word also is never used in conjunction with war 
or with self-defense, or with capital punishment. And so what is meant by murder? Well, we might think first that this is premeditated murder. How do we think about that? Cold-blooded murder. You've thought about it. How are you going to kill someone? And you carry it out. It's also what our legal system would call voluntary manslaughter. This is hot-blooded murder. If cold-blooded murder and premeditated murder, you've thought about it, voluntary manslaughter is in the heat of the moment. You didn't go into this situation thinking that you were going to kill somebody, but your passions have gotten the better of you, and in the heat of the moment, you've risen up, you've struck down somebody, and you've killed them. Still intentional. It's also involuntary manslaughter. This is reckless behavior that would put an innocent person at risk. We would think of that in our day and age like drunk driving. You might not have gone out with the intention to kill somebody, but because of your actions, because of your recklessness, if you do end up killing somebody, it's very grievous. So this word encapsulates all of these thoughts. And what is God saying here to his people? No one could take, no one could kill human life in this covenant community of God without divine approval. And we must keep this relationship to God in mind as we think about our relationship to one another killing, this taking of an innocent human life. We see it in our culture around us. And so I could talk today about some of those areas that are prohibited here by this verse, such as abortion or euthanasia. Those would be legitimate to talk about. I'm not going to unpack those topics this morning. I'm going to instead focus our time on understanding why murder is so horrendous and utterly abhorrent in the eyes of God, and where murder comes from. So you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful this morning. But the first two, describing why murder is so horrendous and utterly abhorrent in the eyes of God. Number one, murder attacks God. Murder attacks God. You might say, wait a second, doesn't murder attack other people? That might be the first place we go, right? It does, but it's much worse than that. In order to understand this verse, we have to go back for one moment to the verse that precedes it. Honor your father and your mother. Let's not isolate these ten words from one another. They go together, they are in a flow, they are there for a reason. And so as we come to the sixth word, we have to remember that the word that's come just before it, honor your father and your mother. Why should you honor your father and your mother? Well, one of the reasons why you should honor them is because you are made in their likeness. You are created in their image. In fact, that's what it says back in the book of Genesis. Adam lived 130 years He fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Image bearing and likeness is passed down from generation to generation. But where did this likeness and this image bearing originate? It started with God. It began on the sixth day of creation. When you read the creation account in Genesis 1... You can move through the days of creation rather quickly. But when you get to the sixth day, everything slows down. More space is given to what God did on the sixth day than to any other day. Why is that? Because on the sixth day, God created man. 
Man is the crowning achievement of all of God's creation. God forming, making, creating man is the pinnacle, the climax, the bright spot of everything else that he created. In the expanse of the whole universe, where we cannot even fathom its farthest reaches, we know that the best part of God's creation is right here on this little blue speck where God created man. It says this in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God has made us to represent and to image him in this world. All people, without distinction, are created in the image of God. Now this image, yes, has been marred because of the fall and because of sin, that has entered into our world, but we must have this view, that every life is precious because every life is created in the image of God. In this way, everyone is created equal, from the person in the womb to the oldest person upon their deathbed, from the poorest person to the richest person, from the most well-known person to the least known person. All are created in the image of God. And from the time of Noah and his family, we are Uh, who are saved through the flood, we are warned against taking the life of another and murdering them. Here's what it says in Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. How is it that you can honor God How is it that you can show respect for God? You can honor God by respecting the image of another. To strike down another human being in murder is to attack the very image of God that he has put in us, and it is to attack God himself. To murder another human being is to murder that which is most like God. Murderer hates life, does not value life. And it's a direct reflection on the fact then that they hate creation. Murder attacks and tries to usurp God's sovereignty, his rule, and his control. Who is it? Who is it, dear brother and sister, that holds life in his hands? Who is it that is the determiner of our days? Who is it that says when life begins and when life ends? Is it not God? When you murder, you are elevating yourself to be as God, putting yourself over your neighbor's life. No Israelite and no other person has the right to decide when to end someone else's life. When we understand the truth that we are created in God's image, It's meant to make us think highly of our neighbor. To look at someone else and say, this person is precious because they are made in the image of God. It's it's to make us think better of our neighbors than we normally would or do. And it's to make us think more modestly and honestly about ourselves. Receiving the truth that all are made in the image of God, that people are more like me than I'd like to think, kills our pride and sense of superiority. And how could it be that someone would murder and take what rightfully belongs to God? How is this even possible? 
And is it very far from any of us? To take life If all you have ever done with your life is take from God what rightfully belongs to Him, if you've been overthrowing His authority in numerous areas of your life, if you've been shaking your fist at God saying, you don't own me, God, I'm my own person, what's to stop the attack upon God in the case of murder? Would you see life as God sees life? Would you cherish life as, God's, as God cherishes life? It first must mean that there is a love for God and a submission to God. It first means that with your own life, you need to give that to God. If you're willing to take your own life from God? If you are willing to say, this life is my life, God, I get to do what I want to do with it. We first must be willing to give our life to God. Not take from Him. then that we begin to understand just how precious life is. So, murder first attacks God. But second, murder advocates the work of Satan. Murder advocates the work of Satan. It's not bad enough that murder is an attack upon God himself. What is also heinous is the thought that a murderer is acting as one in the line of Satan. The seed of the serpent continues in murderers who would destroy life. Satan would love to destroy more and more and more life. Satan would love for those who have been made in the image of God to be no more. Especially those in whom the image of God is being renewed, especially in Christians. Jesus warns the Pharisees and the unbelieving Jews of his day in this way. He says in John 8, 44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. This is what Satan has been doing and promoting since the beginning. He is a murderer from the beginning. Why? Because there is no truth in him. He has completely and utterly rejected the truth. And so where do we see Satan murder from the beginning? Well, we see it in the first murder between two brothers, Cain and Abel. Does it any wonder to us that that's where the first murder takes place. These aren't two strangers. These aren't two people who have just met. These are brothers. As Cain and Abel bring their offerings to the Lord, the Lord has regard for Abel's offering, but he has no regard for Cain's offering, and Cain becomes angry. And the Lord warns Cain Cain, don't let sin gain dominion over you. Sin is crouching at the door. It wants to overtake you. You must rule over it, not be ruled by it. But then we read this in Genesis 4. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Cain thought he had silenced Abel, gotten him out of the way, taken him out, and no one is going to know. I've gotten away with it. What does God say? Your brother's blood's crying out to me. I hear it. 
It's deafening in my ears. In your anger, in your envy, you thought you had ended his goodness and his righteousness so that you could then please God, so that you could then be seen as good, receive God's pleasure. But you only opposed God, Cain. Here it is, the seed of the serpent, opposed to the seed of the woman. He is opposed to the one who will make everything right. He's opposed to those who are made in the image of God and seek to reflect the image of God and how they worship. The Israelites even knew this from firsthand experience. Where had they just come from? They just come from Egypt. What do they know about the pharaohs that they were under as slaves? Did those pharaohs cherish their lives? Did they hold them as precious? Were they willing to murder? How easily it came to them. And think of where the Israelites are now. Here, gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. They are miraculously and supernaturally receiving the ten words from God. They are receiving what it means to live in a covenant relationship with their Lord. Finally understanding how they, as the firstborn son, are to live in close, intimate relationship with their father. And what a denial it would be of their sonship if they began to murder one another. They're not acting like their father. What a slap in the face to say, you are no longer our father, we have another father. We'd rather follow him. The sixth word is a line of demarcation in the sand. Who do you belong to? Who is your father? Because you will live like your father. You will do the work that your father wants you to do. Are you the seed of the serpent? Are you doing the work of Satan? Whose destruction is sure. He is going to fail. He is going to be defeated. He is going to be overthrown. And how often in our world, it looks like Satan is winning. How often in our world it looks like the murderer is having his way, yet be, be assured, the seed of the woman will prevail. Victory is as good as done in Christ Jesus, who did what? Who obeyed his Father perfectly. Those are the reasons why murder is so heinous. There are probably other reasons, but I highlight two of them. And now, where does murder come from? Number three, murder arises out of a heart of hatred and anger. Murder arises out of a heart of hatred and anger. Jesus takes this word, this sixth word, thou shalt not murder Jesus takes that word and he transforms it, doesn't he? We heard it today in our scripture reading. It goes back to Matthew chapter 5. What does he say? You've heard it said, but I say to you. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. How utterly fascinating this is. Jesus doesn't come and say to us, don't worry, don't worry, I know you're not a murderer. Rather, he says, murder is more prevalent than you think. Murder is more than a mere external action. People murder others in their own hearts. And 
in the blink of an eye, we go from asking who's a murderer to asking who's not a murderer. Jesus holds the law up before our very eyes and says, you want to see what a murderer looks like? Take a look in the mirror. Have you been angry with another? Have you insulted another? Have you said in your heart, you fool to another? Guilty. And this is where Jesus says, all of these actions come from, they come from a heart. Murder comes out of a heart that is full of hatred and anger. In order to, in order to keep this word, in order to hold on to this word, we need a new heart. And it's so dangerous that we can try to hide it. We can make it so that no one else really even knows about it. It can be done in secret, it can be undercover, it can be private, and we would think to ourselves, well, it really doesn't hurt anybody else, does it? No. Do you hear what Jesus said in Matthew? You think God would send that person to experience torment and unquenchable fire if it wasn't that bad? You've attacked God. You've sided with Satan. You failed to uphold life as precious. And so this action that begins in the heart, that can even take place in the heart, we can murder because of the malice that is in our hearts also tends to come out, doesn't it? It comes out in the words that we say. It comes out in the electronic killing fields that is the internet. How easy it is to pick up your phone and shoot a text. How easy it is to write an email and press send. How easy it is to go on social media. And without a thought, we murder. Even in the heat of the moment, in passion, How much, how much have we murdered? Not just saying, have I murdered? How many, in fact, have you murdered? Are you a serial killer, a mass murderer in your heart? It stems from a heart of hatred and anger. And this is not righteous anger. God is good and angry. <laughs> he is slow to anger and righteously, rightly angry about certain things like sin. Anger is not always necessarily sinful, but anger that leads to murder in your heart is always sinful. We are inclined to justify our own impulses of anger and feelings of hatred by insisting that we are looking out for God's honor when in fact we are simply pursuing our own self-interests. How many times do we say, I'm justified in my anger. I'm justified in telling you what I think. I'm justified in giving you a piece of my mind. how awful to think this happens in marriages this happens between parents and children this happens in the church this happens in the workplace In fact, turn with me to James for a second. Book of James, chapter 4. James, chapter 4, the first three verses.
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so what? So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Who is James writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to the church. He's saying, this is the problem going on in you. You are murderous. You are murdering one another because of your passions. Or what about 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 15? For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Who is John writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's writing to those in the church saying, don't be like Cain. Why? Because we are prone to being like Cain. If we cannot even treat the life of fellow Christians with whom we've covenanted together as precious, if we cannot cherish one another, there is something fundamentally wrong with our hearts. And to the one who thinks that they could never murder, that somehow you are above murder, that you have so far progressed in your sanctification that murder is no longer possible for you, take heed. You are ripe to be used by Satan as a serial killer, a mass murderer. If you would say, I could never murder, you don't understand your own heart. Your heart can and will deceive you. And the most horrible advice in all of the world is follow your heart. With that, you have to understand the nature of sin. Sin is persistent. Sin does not give up. Sin wants to have control. Sin wants you to think that you are okay. Sin wants you to lull, uh, wants to lull you to sleep with a false sense of security while it plays in the playground of your heart. The heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are still sick. And it's only the work of the Holy Spirit in us, working in our hearts, convicting us of our sin. It's only the power of the Spirit that keeps us from this sin. And if you would say that this could never be you, you also don't understand the grace of God. Because it's only by the grace of God that I'm not more of a murderer. <laughs> that I don't do more to murder others. By the grace of God, there go I. It's His grace that rescues me and saves me from such an awful state. The vilest offender who truly believes, the worst murderer, the one who would not think twice about taking a life, that one can be saved by the grace of God. But I could never murder. Yes, you could. If you are not convinced otherwise, you could be on the brink of doing it. Or maybe already have given in to doing it without even knowing it. G.K. Chesterton, an English author who wrote some mystery novels, one of his characters that he created was a man by the name of Father Brown. Father Brown was asked as he investigated all these murders that take place in this small town in England, how was he able to do it? How was he able to decipher and detect all of these murders and find out who did it? This is what Father Brown says. He says, you see, it was I 
who killed all those people. No man's really good till he knows how bad he is, or might be, till he's realized exactly how much right he has to all his snobbery and sneering and talking about criminals as if they were apes in a forest 10,000 miles away, till he's squeezed out of his soul the last drop of oil of the Pharisees, till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe and sane under his own hat. What was Father Brown saying? We like to think it's all out there. The criminals, the murderers, the vilest of vile. When Father Brown says, it all starts right in here. Would we be cut to the heart? Would we say, there's need for repentance in my life for the people that I've killed? Jesus came not to take life, but to give his life and lay his life down for sinners, for the ungodly, for the unrighteous, and for the murderers. The one who was truly innocent died in order to give life. And look at what it says, one more verse from the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Acts chapter 3, 14 and 15. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. How I think those verses are an apt description of our world and of our own lives. What does he say to these people? You are more comfortable with a murderer in your midst than you are with the author of life. You feel better. You like it when there's a murderer in your midst rather than being in the presence of the one who authored and gives life. That is true for our world. That is true for our own hearts. We are more comfortable with murderers inside of us than we are with the author of life. But it's the author of life who gives life, who restores life, who renews life, who can come to us and say, it's okay. You don't need to be comfortable with that murderer anymore. You can receive me. You can be brought into the family of God. You can come into my kingdom. You can know my joy and love. How precious is life to us, and how precious is eternal life to us. We are more than just bodies. We are embodied souls. How precious is life that not only would we cherish it, but that we would even promote life and eternal life. This is the life that is most precious. This is the life that is most desirable. This is the life that is so satisfying. And this is the life that Jesus gives to all who call on him by faith. To all who say, yes, Jesus, I believe in you. I trust you. I want you, the author of life. I don't want this murder anymore. I don't want this sin anymore. I want you. I want to be washed clean of all of my sin. I don't want this blood on my hands. I want to be clean and how we should be like David. David who was an adulterer and a murderer 
calls out to God and says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Maybe those are the words that you need to say for the very first time today. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Or maybe those are the words that you need to say again today. Coming clean before God. Coming once again to the author of life. He has given his life so that we might have life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Work in us, I pray. Help us to see those areas where we have murdered, those areas where we've said in our heart, you fool, to our brother, to our sister. You tell us the world will know we are disciples of Jesus by how we love one another. And so, Father, let us put off any anger or hatred or malice or envy. And let us seek to walk by the Spirit in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's only those who have the Spirit who can do this, Father. And so if there's anyone here this morning who sees no way out of being a murderer, the good news is there is a way out through Christ. They're putting faith in Him and in His work on the cross. Repenting of their sin, Father, I pray that they would run to Him this morning. Find forgiveness, find peace, find life in the wake of dead bodies that lay in their path. Pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.